Are you curious about the threats you face online? Join the CyberCats once a month and get your paws dirty digging into technology and security. Get tech literate with Sarah, Nicole, and cybersecurity noob Victoria. We aren't kitting around about staying safe online. So welcome everybody. So we're really excited today. Uh, this is Sarah and we have Josh here, our producer. Howdy. And we are welcoming Dr. Craig Albert. Hello. So today our episode is going to really focus on social media, but what's more important here is the manipulation and the way social media and other forms of, you know, internet-based technology can push our behaviors and manipulate us. And so really we're going to be looking at this and it closely relates to information operations, and it really almost steps into the realm of information warfare. So, you know, Dr. Albert here is an expert on that type of stuff. So we'll be relying on him to kind of help us put social media from our perspective into the context of how information operations and information warfare are affecting our country. So first, I want to start by bringing up the fire Festival. Now, if you have not seen, there are a documentary, there is a documentary on Netflix and on Hulu, and they're actually both worth watching. But 100%. <laughs> you should watch both. Because yes. if you watch one, you're going to want to watch the mm -hmm. second one. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's entertaining enough to be like, I already know how this ends, but I want to watch another version. Yep. So basically the fire Festival, this happened a few years ago, and it was this massive social media misinformation marketing campaign. And what it did was capitalize on millennials FOMO. So we know what FOMO is, right? Fear of missing out. Right. So fear of missing out. So the idea behind this festival is, uh, you know, it was something that used a marketing campaign to entice millennials with these beautiful images of a private island and this weekend exclusive party. And it was this music festival to end all music festivals. It was supposed to be this new, you know, this new wave of... The, the place to be the influencer you've exactly. always dreamed of being. Exactly. It was, it was, you can be an influencer too. You can, you can rub elbows with these models. And they used models and influencers to, you know, shoot some really beautiful footage in the uh, Bahamas. And then they paid a marketing firm, which I can't say their name because it has vulgarities in it, but they paid this marketing firm to create this campaign. And it was actually very, I think, interesting and sort of groundbreaking because it was super vague. Rather than in-your-face text about what it is and things like that, it was just this orange tile. And what they did is they coordinated the effect uh, with multiple different influencers and celebrities, and they just had this tile, this orange tile, posted. And so what people saw in their feeds on like Instagram was just this orange tile. And so it was the curiosity and then the hashtag, right? So it was the curiosity that drove people to looking closer at this campaign. And then it was the images of these influencers and this idea of this hyper exclusive event that drew people in. And so they ended up getting hundreds of people to sign up and pay for exclusive villas and catered meals for this amazing, you know, crazy f music festival. What they arrived to was a really, really bad situation with wet beds that had just been, you know, rained on. They were actually FEMA tents that were set up out there and wet mattresses. It was, um, you know, the, the famous ham and cheese sandwich. If you saw that photo, that was their catered meal. It wasn't even ham. It was just cheese on bread in a styrofoam little thing. And it was very Lord of the Flies scenario, right? I mean, it was bad. Um, in the documentary, and I'll just ruin this for everyone, there was a, a clip where a guy started peeing on things to like keep other people from stealing. <laughs> like it was, it was really bad. I, that sounds weird, but like it was really very Lord of the Flies. Um, so, you know, that those documentaries were made to expose how a celebrity and a guy with a really interesting idea. And a big marketing budget. And a big marketing budget, <laughs> right? basically coordinated this event, but there was nothing behind the event, right? So, and the guy ended up, you know, being prosecuted for, you know, all sorts of things because he took money from people for an event that never actually came to fruition. Um, Purposely, right? He never wanted it to. Well, so here's the thing is he says he did, 
But any rational per person would look at everything leading up to, and he had multiple people around him saying, this is unreasonable. We cannot plan and execute this. We do not have the time or the funds. Uh, but what he did is he purposefully uh, misled investors to continue to get more investments. Um, they even did something at some point where um, they they had everyone that had already paid for their tickets for the festival. They said, oh, we're going cashless. So give us more money and we'll give you this bracelet that'll have your funds loaded on it just to raise more money yep. because they didn't have uh -huh. enough money to try to put the event together. Right. So it turned out to be really, really bad. But, you know, all of that being said, um, Josh, you know, what are your takeaways from this whole fire Festival disaster? So I think fire Festival was a prime example of, like, how easy it is to, if you have enough budget and you have enough people involved, using social media to truly manipulate people, especially if it's something that you can push them towards, let's say, you know, fame and being around, you know, artists and people that you want to, you know, associate yourself with, that sort of thing. Um, and really it's a prime example of how with a flashy website, some influencers, um, and some like cool, like even like stock footage from an island vacation, you can completely like pull the veil over people's eyes and suck in whether it's millennials or, you know, Gen Y or literally any, you know, anyone who is on social media enough that would be like, yeah, that's where I want to be seen. That's what I want to do. And the genius here is they did target. Like, this was targeted. Again, this oh, yeah. was a targeted campaign. It right. wasn't like you had you know, Gen Xers or whoever, boomers mm -hmm. signing up. This was targeted at millennials. Right, because it had all the little pieces that, you know, if you did if you did your enough research on social media marketing that you could pin down, you know, well, the algorithm is going to push it at these people, and they're the ones, they're, that's the money that we want. And so it's it's crazy how, like, one man with, like, just an idea and a budget can cause like such a catastrophe for people. And I mean, it, people just got duped. I mm -hmm. mean, it was, it was hard and it, you can quickly see how taking that and applying it to like a nation state, like how they could weaponize that against another nation to control a populace. Like you can easily draw that line. Right. So, so that's really why we start with fire festival because it's just this great look at how, like Josh said, how that manipulation can happen and how devastating it can be. And obviously we know that that is something that has been recognized by nation states. And specifically, you know, we know Russia has been one of those players. But before we dive into that, let's talk about disinformation versus misinformation. So misinformation is common. That is just incorrect information that's being put out. And that, that happens. Disinformation is different. So as we talk about some of the campaigns and some of the things, you know, in this episode, we need to keep our mind on disinformation. And the idea here is this is incorrect or false information, but it has an intent behind it. So the intent is to change behavior or manipulate actions or sentiments. So, you know, this is something where we look at these types of campaigns that are, you know, done from a marketing standpoint commercially and how it impacts us, and it's really driven towards money. But then we need to look at nation states and how are these tools being used against us by those types of entities. And like so, their motives. Behind, right, and their motives. Yeah. And yeah. the interesting thing here is that, you know, there's no hacking or coding required. This is something that is simply using a name, like it, it's all built there for them, right? Well, there's cognitive hacking. Yes. So, so talk to us about that and your feelings on how Russia has, you know, used this and, and what they're doing with this. I mean, their their whole plan is to change the way people in America, or if they're targeting us specifically in this instance, change how we think, and they really want to sow discord and really disunify the United States, and they want to do this because. Russia believes that it should have won the Cold War. It, it, it's an assertive foreign policy that they've had since the Soviet Union, and they're pretty mad that they're under the United States right now as far as great power politics go. And so they thought, they think, they continue to think that one way to, to change the international system is to sow discord in the United States, and they want to do this through things that we already have issues with, like race relations, for instance. And so... They want to weaponize social media to make our extremes more extreme and hopefully 
to make those groups target each other internally in the United States. That's been Russia's game plan since the 1930s when it was the Soviet Union. It didn't have social media to do it then. They did it through various other resources back then, including trying to, to have leaflets spread in the United States, to, have, to form minor political parties that would start sowing discords here. They put operatives here, and so it was a real propaganda a campaign that you would expect. Isn't there a whole TV show about that, about Russian operatives? What oh, the Americans. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> what you're saying is that Russia's whole CV is just covered in they have been experience with ex this kind of stuff. They have so been doing so what you're saying is those scary years. TV shows that we watch, and you're like, that'd be crazy if it was real. That's real. That is real. Okay. <laughs> that is absolutely real, and they've been doing it for a long time, and they're the experts on it. Uh, they're the, the leading experts at propaganda and information operations, period. And with the creation of social media, as soon as social media... As soon as the world started to know that, oh, this is real, this is going to you know, revolutionize how we communicate with one another, Russia began developing propaganda and social persuasion techniques and tactics and full strategies on how purposely that it could uh, sow discord against citizens in its adversarial countries. And the United States was the prime target. Why? Because... Well, we made those social networks. <laughs> we, we made those social <laughs> networks. But they want to target us because they don't want to fight a great power war with us kinetically. They don't... They might... Putin specifically might think he can win that in a long-duration war. But why fight a long-duration war right. if you don't have to fire a shot whatsoever? And you let can them get, tear themselves let up. Let them tear themselves down. That is yeah. specifically their strategy against the United States. And, and they're using... They're weaponizing social media to do this. And you can see it all around. And, and let's be clear. I'm not pro-Putin or Russia, but that's pretty smart. Like, but... Uh, you know, Putin is a, a strategic genius when it comes to this. He's a political genius. He's very Machiavellian. He's he's tactful. Well, he, he can play the long game, too. Mm -hmm. He can play the long game and the short game. And let's not forget. Yeah, I mean, when you don't have office term limits, long game's very possible. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or when you can rewrite your country's right, exactly. constitution. Exactly. But let's not forget, and I don't think a lot of people know this, is that he was a spy. He yep. was a KGB operative stationed mm -hmm. in East Berlin. And there are cases, case studies of him out there about how effective he was, but he certainly learned this type of behavior or how people are persuaded, and now he's implemented that in the social media campaigning. Right, and, and that's the interesting thing is, you know, a lot of this goes back to psychology, human psychology, like you said, human hacking, and that's something obviously that spies and people that work in that type of realm are more accustomed to. Um, so, Yes, Russia is a, a pretty pretty active player in this, and they are definitely using social media to try to divide us from within. But Josh, um, let's let's talk about the strategies they use. So let's introduce some of those strategies. Yeah. So I think so. First one that I'll bring up is just like undermining public confidence in a democracy. Right. Um, which. That's huge, which, especially which, with the, the election year. You've seen a lot more of that right now. Right, and that's the I think that's the most obvious one that we hear about all the time um, in terms of, like, interference in, election, in electoral mm -hmm. process, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. um, trying to make people feel unsure, mm -hmm. basically, about those things. And that leads right into kind of exacerbating political divisions, which, I mean, Dr. Albert, you brought up in, like, taking, you know, the black and the white and, you know, no gray area, like mm -hmm. you're against each other, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Yeah, and this goes back to the Soviet Union who wanted to divide us along racial lines, or they didn't want to start the division. They knew it was an issue we already had. And this they wanted is a, to stoke the fire. They wanted to stoke the fire, and this is what they do. They find something. They do this in all their target nation mm -hmm. states. They find something that is already causing political upheaval or something that's part of the narrative of the country that's been an issue, mm -hmm. and they start to divide those extremes. And for the U.S., of course, that was race. And mm -hmm. that's a specific strategy that goes back to the 1930s of the Soviet Union in its relations with the United States. Let's stoke racial fears. And I think it's important to note that it's not that we're saying that those those um, issues, the black and the white, the polarization, it's not that we're saying there aren't issues. There are issues, but they recognize that those issues cannot be overcome if you polarize populations because they will refuse to negotiate and work together on a solution. They will start to tear each other up from the inside. So that's the idea is they know what the problems are and there are problems and they use those against us instead of helping us, you know, unify as a country to figure out how to overcome those. They amplify it. Right. And that brings me to my next one, which is erode trust in government. Right. Um, which... 
which also goes back to public confidence in democracy. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's all encompassing in terms of like, if you don't trust your public institutions because of misinformation or disinformation that you've heard, then mm -hmm. I mean, who can you trust? Right. And I that's mean, going to cause those deep divided lines to, you know, look for alternatives, right? If I can't turn to my government, who do I turn to? What do I do? Do I take that action on my own? So you see militias on either side. And so that's really that, um, you know, that exaggeration that's causing this um, uprising, if you will, of these extremes. And the and they also really want to push the Russian agenda for foreign populations in ways that, like, Look at how look at how stable Russia is. Yeah, Putin, strong man, <laughs> has control. That like here I am. That you know, look at all the chaos that's happening that we partially caused in your country. <laughs> <laughs> but look at how that's not happening here. I mean, right. you know, and getting into like other foreign policy positions that Russia has that are in their interest. But they they want to make themselves seem like. The strong country, essentially. And what's your perception on that, Dr. Albert? Like the Russian agenda, how's that? Are they doing well at pushing that? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're brilliant at this. And the, the Russian impulse has been for uh, authoritarianism more generalized in the United States. So we believe more in democratic or individualistic rights. They believe in the state first. And this is something that's been a part of the Russian you know, historical memory for hundreds of years now, and they continue to that. They think that creates security. If you poll Russians or you look at it, any of the polling data that we have, of course, if it's done by a Russian agency, you have to understand that there might be some state manipulation in there. But they trust strong individuals much more than they trust what they perceive as weak individuals. They, they, and they want authoritative governments. Maybe they don't phrase it authoritarian, but mm -hmm. they say they trust and the world is safer with more authoritarian governments, and that democracy is weak and cannot protect its people. And so one reason they want to show or sow discord for America's democratic institutions is because that'll stop the, the effort to democratize Russia. Mm -hmm. And so they're pushing against their own citizens in this context because they don't want a democracy in Russia. They want to keep so it. So it's really a reflective attack. By well, attacking us, they're reinforcing what they know breeds stability internally. Precisely. Well, and it and it it's their attempt to change the global narrative around like democracy and freedom and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Precisely. Yeah. And which leads into my final point, which is like they really they really want to create confusion and distrust and the blurring that line between what's real, what's not, fact, fiction, that sort of thing. And just allow, allow you in your own mind to call everything into question mm -hmm. that you know. Have I been lied to? It makes Have it a I lot not? easier to push your own agenda and your own facts when... Right you know, your population isn't sure what to believe. And when you have an open society like the United States is, Russia has a much easier time with these type of operations mm -hmm. against us because mm -hmm. everything is allowed. I mean, right. with free thinking and with social media. In Russia, on the other hand, it's a lot harder to control. We or can't push our propaganda can't in push even it back if we on tried. Them. Exactly, because yeah. they're a closed society, not just on... Uh, the, the internet, but within their society itself, it's much more... Uh, Which is really funny, because we think of that as a disadvantage, like, oh, you censor the internet, that's terrible for you, and it's like, but it's actually good for the fact that, you know, you can't actually, you know what I mean? Like, it just, it, it takes the power and it gives it to one entity instead of distributing that and looking at the possibility of a, you know, a shift in power as far as who's manipulating or controlling people. I guess that's what it comes down to is just manipulating and controlling people. Do you want your own government doing it or do you want a foreign government doing it? Absolutely. Yep. And authoritarian regimes have the offensive advantage when it comes to information operations. So to break this down even further, when we look at propaganda, and specifically I'm going to ask Dr. Albert here in a second to talk to us about how his program explores that. We know that Russian propaganda on social media is generally divided into four themes. So we see things that are more political, right? Political things that are, you know, meant to foster that distrust in government that Josh mentioned. You also see some financial things. So this is you know, creating distrust in the financial institutions of the Western world. Then you see those social is issues that we talked about, police brutality, um, you know, racial tensions, ethnic tensions, that type of thing. And then finally, you see the doomsday 
style conspiracy theories, right? So those are the real, real extremist ones. So these are kind of their themes. This is how they look at uh, targeting us. But I want to call on Dr. Albert to talk to us about how propaganda fits into your program, how you and your students approach that, and kind of what your thoughts are on that as far as how Russia approaches those four themes. You know, before we get to that, if you don't mind, the What's interesting looking at their themes of propaganda is that in 2010, they advanced a new Russian doctrine of military warfare overall, and it pretty much targets war in different conceptual analyses, and the analyses match the, their efforts at propaganda. So mm -hmm. they want to wage war. Of course, military is one of the main domains, but it's also economically, politically, mm -hmm. and through social societal warfare. So mm -hmm. they've kind of invented a new form of warfare, which I kind of call total societal warfare. Mm -hmm. Like they want to wage warfare on every construct that a society has before they reach, or hopefully without having to reach military conflict. And right. so that's the Russian doctrine as expressed in their 2010 military doctrine, that's really which is scary. interesting. <laughs> yeah, and in the program, which is the Master of Arts of Intelligence and Security Studies, I mean, we focus on three broad spectrums of, of security. We focus on strategic cybersecurity, including information warfare. So we don't do the technical or the technical aspects. We just teach what that means in a strategic context from nation state operators or from non-state operators like ISIS. How does ISIS use uh, cyberspace to facilitate their, their interests? We focus on traditional security studies, such as terrorism studies, counterterrorism studies, ethnic conflict and political violence, all your traditional war studies uh, types of concepts. And then the third one is intelligence studies. But for this new program that we're developing, it's a concentration in social persuasion and influence. And so we developed a track that focuses specifically on how nation states and non-state actors use specifically social media, but all forms of propaganda and social influence and persuasion to advance their interests against their strategic adversaries. And we focus in the program on several strategic adversaries that are typical in security studies, North Korea, Iran, China, Russia, and of course, ISIS, because they have a cyber caliphate that's pretty sophisticated if you think that they don't have the state apparatus to, behind it to support. Uh, that's part of the program. I've watched Jack Ryan. I've seen that. <laughs> <laughs> Good show. Yes. Good show. Yes. Yeah. We're going to chat this little video game here. Yeah. Nobody will know. Exactly. Yeah, I know. Well, yeah. But, yeah. but this going back to what's scary on a movie, that's real. That is that's, real. You know, it's, it's fiction, right? I'm not saying Jack Ryan's real. It's fiction. Yep. But the methods that they use, those are investigated. Those are researched. Those are real things that are being used by these organizations. And what's interesting is in military studies and in policy, people are trying to you know, figure out a way to combat information operations or how to do counter-information warfare. And they're trying to develop new theory or new policies. But for Russia, for instance, they're using the same tools of social persuasion that's been as part of their doctrine for hundreds of years. So for, for U.S. analysts or for policymakers, you don't need to reinvent the wheel here. You just need to know how Russia is using this new landscape of, of digital warfare or the digital landscape to do the same means and tactics they've been using for hundreds of years. The same way that good retail, you know, it's now Amazon, for example, it's online. They're just taking, you know, what worked brick and mortar, so to speak, or tanks and guns and you know, applying it to, or spies, I should say, probably, spies on the ground to, well, we don't need to send spies because the internet's here and people are going to find it anyway. It's in addition to all the others. Yeah. And so they're still using their traditional sources, you know, and it's really the, the, the means that shift, the tools have shifted into cyberspace, but it's the same strategy that was used for the radio, the same type. When television came out, same type of thing. So now it's just transfixed or transposed a little bit into the cyberspace or a lot into the cyberspace. So now they're just using the same tools, methodologies, or strategies of persuasion so persuasion and social influence, but in the digital space. Uh, so we don't need to try to develop a brand new strategy of fighting it. We just need to realize that it's going on mm -hmm. and really let people in the United States know that it's going on so we can have better, you know, I call it cyber hygiene. That probably has a different meaning for computer scientists, but you have to understand what information is and what fake news is and misinformation and disinformation. And the program tries to teach those that want to be analysts or already are in the U.S. intelligence field some way 
This is the tr strategic context that you are operating within. This is why Russia is trying to do this. This mm -hmm. is why ISIS is trying to do this, how they do it. And how can we advance U.S. interests now knowing that, that Russia, for instance, that North Korea is trying these methods out on social media? Yeah, I think that understanding why things are happening certainly makes it easier to spot them happening, right? If, if we know why something is going to happen, then recognizing those efforts, I think, becomes simpler. I will say, I think it's a bit of a catch-22 situation because I agree. I think that, you know, we have to be able to educate people and allow people to see when this is happening and understand that. But I also feel, and this is slightly political, what I'm going to say, but I also feel that part of the intelligence community is the need for secrecy because we don't want to turn our cards, right? So it's like a game of poker. So the problem becomes if we expose too much to the public and say, this is exactly what they're doing, that means that they will change their tactics to fly under the radar. So it makes it harder on us because then we have to go and detect this new method. So it's this very, like, it's a cyclical battle, right? It's not like it is just this ongoing struggle that we face. That's the nature of living in an open society, though, right. when you have to balance the idea of liberty against mm -hmm. the idea of security. And cyberspace prevent, presents a particular dilemma when it comes to that balance. And that balance is thousands of years old. You know, Plato writes about it. And this is something that we have to adjust our minds to. When living in a democracy, you are more susceptible to being in mm -hmm. an insecure environment than you are if you live in an authoritarian regime, at least an insecure or unsecure environment from external actors. Whereas in an authoritarian regime, you're secure from external threats, perhaps, mm -hmm. because you're a closed society. But, but you're, you're fully vulnerable to internal. Internal, yeah. exactly. So, and I think that that balance that, like you note is really important that people understand and you know you have to accept it because if you don't accept it then that possibility for liberty and freedom is out the window so I think it's the idea of we have to accept that and acknowledge that vulnerability that we have because it means that's that's the cost of our freedom really yep. um so but so we anyways don't, we don't like admitting that we're vulnerable. no we don't we don't it's, it's very hard. That's very yes. hard for everyone. Um, but so, so Russia, they have this thing called a troll farm. Now, I think most people that are familiar, familiar with the internet know what a troll is, right? This is that, I guess, oh, how would you describe that, Josh? Like, I mean... I know what it is, but I'm like, how do you describe a you're troll? You're just there to grind people's gears. Yes, yes. Like, that's like Peter Griffin, like, that really grinds my gears. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so... <laughs> So troll farms, right? So here's the fun thing about troll farms. I mean, they're bad. Don't get me wrong. They're not good. So troll farms are bad. But Russians are very good with creating and operating troll farms. And what's interesting about these troll farms is in order to be an effective troll, you have to be fluent in pop culture and things like that. So like the meme culture. I love memes. True story. My husband was looking through the photos on my phone the other day. And was like, you have more memes in here than pictures of your daughter. And I was like, correct. <laughs> and? And I was like, did you enjoy the memes, though? That's the question. Um, but they understand this part of our culture, right? And it's something that as that evolves, their troll farms will have to, I guess, steer with that evolution. Because memes are, I mean, they're... They're not new, but they're relatively new in the context of how well, we they, interact. They, they become a bigger way in the a bigger way of communication for us. Right, like, especially with the online. Right. Yeah. Between emojis and memes, it's part it's an integral part of how we communicate with each other. Right. So um so there's actually some really good reporting on you know, troll farms, um, there's there's some information, uh, and we will make sure in the show notes to publish it, but there's actually a really great uh, segment that, uh, it's a news segment that was done that covered this Russian operative that worked inside of a troll farm. Um, and it was, it was very interesting to get that perspective. So again, we'll make sure that that's there in the show notes. Um, but when we look at these troll farms, we have to recognize that um, these trolls are actually on accounts on social media. So it's something where we can't, you know, these big tech companies can't stop people from registering accounts. It, and, and what we can't do is measure someone's intent behind having the account. So I think, for me, that's where it becomes very difficult. Um, because if you ask tech, right, if you ask big tech to police this, well, how, right? Because a Russian troll, how, how do you measure a Russian troll's intent against my intent, 
or Josh's intent, right? How do you measure that? There's no way to do that. So when we look at, um, you know, how do we control it? I think that that's an issue. So, you know, when we look across these different platforms, Twitter uh, and Instagram and Facebook, those are kind of the three big ones. So I'll ask Dr. Albert. So between Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, do you have any like interesting insight into how these different platforms are used or the preponderance of use in these different platforms by different state actors? That's an interesting question. It depends on their strategy and what they're trying to do. And there's all kinds of research on, again, going back to that term of neural cognitive hacking. Mm -hmm. And so we know that... That's one of my favorite topics. Yeah, I love saying <laughs> the word because it makes me sound smart. But, yeah, but right? It's like, they are hacking us. They're just hacking our brains, right. which is a little bit right. scarier in my mind as a social scientist mm -hmm. than hacking hardware or software. Uh, we know that they, on YouTube, for instance, which is something that most people don't know can be used for weaponization of social media, they'll put uh, instant images in there that the human eye doesn't readily process. So you're not familiar that you're, you don't recognize that you're looking at some form of propaganda, but your brain does pick up on it. And that's an attempt to actually translate or, or, or stop or prevent how you're thinking about a certain subject. Mm -hmm. Or it could just be, to make, I mean, this is old. This goes by to yeah. U.S. marketers putting popcorn in the the movie previews, you know. So you would go out and, and so yep. this is something yep. we, right. we have forever. Pri priming you, priming you, mm -hmm. and so Russia does this a lot. ISIS is actually great at doing this. On I don't mean great, I, you know. I should watch the adjectives right. here, but skilled, skilled. skilled yeah. There we go <laughs> at doing this on on YouTube and TikTok and things like that. Russia uses Instagram a lot. Twitter, and it's interesting because the demographics break down as well. So Facebook is, of course, used more by older Americans if mm -hmm. we just limit it to the American demographic spectrum. Instagram and Snapchat are used more by the younger generations. I try to use Twitter and Facebook in the classroom. Twitter's pretty universal. Yeah, but all my students say that's for my grandma and grandpa. Yeah. And like, oh, I'm like, wow, is it really that outdated already? Yep. Uh, and so, well, they have younger grandma and grandpas than we do. That's, that's <laughs> our grandma and grandpa can't get on Twitter. They're like, "What is that evil nonsense phone that connects to the internet?" No. So, yeah, their, their grandparents are just a little older than us. So we just have to put that in perspective. Sorry, didn't no, mean to make you feel right. old. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it does. My students give me heck all the time on this. I mean, that goes back to how these marketing. I, I almost. I would say that you see so much parallel in these troll farms versus marketing. I feel like you could take one of these marketing for firms and take their creative content geniuses and their you know, CEOs, put them in a troll farm, and it's they just, would fit right in. It's just right the in. Bond villain version of yeah, them. Yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> but this is why, well, let's move from state actors to non-state actors. ISIS is so savvy at mm -hmm. this because, you know, when ISIS first started getting attention in America or the American public, you know, let's say 2013, 2012, around then, we just thought they were another, you know, terrorist organization, you know, thrown together and not very sophisticated. But... In actuality, when it comes to their propaganda machine or their social media machine, the first terrorist organization worldwide to really use it with any type of strategy and sophistication and coherence, they hired actual marketing specialists. They hired a computer scientists. I don't mean somebody you know that does this for a hobby or something. They went out and hired PhDs in marketing, PhDs in public relations. If you can't public do it, affairs. hire it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so a lot of people saying, oh, you know, ISIS has 30,000 members of it. Well, about 10% of that is hardened fighters. The rest of them are the state Followers. infrastructure doing everything needed to make the caliphate, this, you know, the so-called So it's almost caliphate. like a corporation. It's it almost is a corporation. built like a corporation. And the idea is the things that they do in terms of ransomware and hacking to generate funds in some illicit manner through Bitcoin, et cetera, is how they're getting a revenue stream to support employing their employees. Absolutely. That's, it's just terrible. It's and, and soon they'll start studying Six Sigma and <laughs> <laughs> going to conference. No, <laughs> ISIS project management certifications. Yeah. yeah but if you look at their strategy, we'll take a, a Twitter, for instance. I mean, they had 1,500 fighters, 15 1,500 deployed fighters to d go fight the Battle of Mosul. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember the year off the top of my head, 2014, 2015 in Iraq. I'll take your word for it. So 1,500. But they created a hashtag, all eyes on ISIS, all eyes on Mosul that scared and created mm -hmm. this persuade you know this 
fear in a population of a million people mm -hmm. that had 20,000 military personnel guarding it. Right. And they just put down their weapons and left because of the social media game that ISIS deployed was so strong. They thought ISIS was much more powerful than they were. And ISIS walked into Mosul without mm -hmm. firing that many shots and took over you know, one of Iraq's largest cities. And this is as sophisticated as you can get, all of it done on Twitter. And you could follow it on Twitter. You could, you know, look, they've taken it down now, of course, uh, all eyes on ISIS and the, the battle from the hashtags mm -hmm. for, for what was going on in Iraq. But the fact that a terrorist organization could defeat a U.S.-sponsored military in Iraq and without firing or without engaging in what we would call a traditional kinetic conventional combat operation is it should be terrifying because if ISIS can do that, what can Russia do? Right. What can China do? So that makes me, uh, I'm curious, have you heard of hashtag hijacking? Of course. Okay. All right, good. Because I, I think, you know, I think of that and I think um, a lot of users, you know, we all understand what a hashtag is, but I think a lot of users have a hard time thinking uh, or, or they're not aware of that idea, the concept of hijacking a hashtag in order to get your own hashtag or your own content into the feeds of your target population. And so, you know, you see those hashtags and it's how we reference things. It's how we, you know, push these out to other people. It's how we jump on board a, a trend. But it's, it's one of those things where, and I find that they're getting better because they used to be really obvious, right? You'd be like, hashtag peace and love, hashtag, you know, uh, something, something, and then some hashtag that's like way out in left field, right? Where you're like, hashtag dog food, what? Like, this is not, these these don't go together. Um, hashtag but, Justin Bieber. What right. does that have to do? Like, Yeah, what? like, what does that have to do <laughs> it's with... It's going to show up in someone's feed What now. does that have to do with ISIS, you know? Like, right. that these, these things don't make sense. But I think it's been a really interesting um, journey as far as watching how they've gotten better, not just with hashtag hijacking, like it's become more subversive, but also things that... You know, we, we talk about phishing emails and how syntax and grammar and things like that, you know. The obvious stuff is right. like, oh, the indicators. that sentence makes no sense right. if you actually understand how to type this language. Yeah, yeah. so they're getting better at um, creating things that are native, fluent, and mistake-free. Mm -hmm. And that gives them more of a look of authenticity, which, again, is more convincing. Um, so it's just kind of you know, one of those things that we have to be aware of. But the battle space exists there now as well, so... You can look at the Israeli Defense Forces, IDF, and they engage in hashtag wars yeah. against Hezbollah, against ISIS, against Hamas, and they'll exchange different propaganda videos to each other. So it's they're communicating with each other via Twitter, <laughs> and everybody in the world can watch it. Yeah, yeah. And the idea of a war waged through hashtags is so strange. Yeah. It is so strange. Um, but like, let's pivot over to Facebook because we're giving Twitter a lot of attention. Um, so Facebook has something, it, it's a it's a feature. I say that with air quotes, it's a feature. Um, that's what we say about anything that is sort of a little sketchy. Like right. it's, a, it's a feature, <laughs> but they'll put you into a political category. And so what- And you, and you can go look at it. Right, you can look at it. You can Facebook. look at it. Wait, I can view my political yeah, category? Yeah, yeah. And so what it does is it looks at the things that you like, the things that you follow. <laughs> no. no, seriously, no. It, it looks at things about you. And it decides this is your race. It decides this is, you know, based on your age, your gender, your race, where you live, the things you look at, what you say you like. Who you're friends with. Who you're friends with. It decides what it thinks your political category is. Okay. Down to like how quickly did you scroll past, right. you know, family you member that on? supports X political party versus family member that supports other political party. How much time are you spending engaging with that content? And then based on what it believes about you. Now, keep in mind, this is for advertising purposes because this is that's the monetization of Facebook, right, is advertising, just like Google. So the idea is if I know more about you, I can target you with what you like, which means my ads are more effective, which means more people will pay for ads, right? So it perpetuates that monetization. But because we are targeting you and putting you in a political category, that means I'm going to reinforce what you see because I want you to see things that I think you're already interested in. Things so, that you're gonna engage with. Right, so whether yeah. you swing left or you swing right, what I'm gonna do is I'm going to exaggerate that. So even if you're moderate, if you start to view more right, 
it's just going to feed you more and more, and you're going to creep toward that edge. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's actually the same tactic that Russia uses. It seeks mm -hmm. people already on an extreme end of the pole in an, in an effort to get you more extreme, and their hope, of course, reinforcement. is... Reinforcement. Mm -hmm. Right, mm -hmm. it's reinforcement. Mm -hmm. They don't target moderates. Russia, at least not in the last bit of research I've been reading, they don't, they don't go after you know, those that are in between or mm -hmm. kind of centrist. They go after those that are already politically and extreme. Rein and reinforce. Rein Force it because right. they want you to take the next step, mm -hmm. which is to, to you know, radicalize uncivil, yeah, obedient disobedience. Yeah. You know, they want to cause rioting, yeah. So it's, it's one of those things where it's literally a feature that is built into this platform and it is for the purpose and of advertising and it'll and it'll never go away because Facebook needs to make money to maintain the platform. How do right. they do that with ads to make their shareholders happy, right? To, yeah, they, we can't. And we, that's why I'm saying this, like big tech, yep. we can't ask them to rip that out. Well, that is their bread and, and butter. I, and, I, well, and I think the other side of that too is like, you can't forget that like these companies are building, let's not use the dirty word monopolies, but they're building <laughs> large <laughs> empires. And like Facebook owns WhatsApp, right. Messenger, Instagram. Right. And all of the ad data from WhatsApp, shared. from Instagram, it's all shared back to right. that joint Facebook advertising identifier. Right. So Facebook has built a profile on you mm -hmm. and they're actively from many different sources. avenues, right? Right. They're able to cross reference and mm -hmm. like I mean, they, they can do marvelous things with the amount of data that they harvest from you on a regular basis. Which again is all meant to drive us towards or to let them drive the right marketing towards us to get our behavior to buy, click, view, because that makes them money. The problem is, again, when we look at these nation state actors, it can be used, the same function, the Russians have figured out how to use it. So, so that's where we kind of have that conundrum, right? Um, so Josh, let's talk about data. Yeah, so um, on the last episode we talked about what data is being collected on you mm -hmm. all the time. Yeah, like in um, our cell phones, yeah. massive amounts. Yeah. Um, and so why is it so concerning when you hear about that amount of data? Right, because we're sitting here talking about, like, they have so much information on you, but why? Right. Why, why does that matter? Like, them having all these touch points with you all the time, knowing how your brain's going to work, that essentially. Right. Why, why is that so upsetting? So this goes back to what we were talking about and how it is a concern because the more data I have about you, those touch points, what I can collect from you, this is going to be able to be used by um, whoever it is, whether it's advertisers, analytics firms, in order to create the right algorithms, right? So just like we were saying earlier where you know a marketer could do the same job that a Russian troll farm can do, well, if a marketing firm can create an algorithm to elicit a particular behavior in a user based on a profile, and then it can actually test that theory and prove and then make adjustments, that means that that same algorithm and process can be used by anyone with the data, right? So when we look at these, um, and this goes back to the last episode, when we talk about these uh, analytics firms that are collecting things, so you install something on your phone, an app. Let's just use TikTok, for example, because we used that. We talked about that, yep. you know, a lot in the last episode. But, you know, some of that analytics, it goes to Google. Well, guess what? Google's already got everything on you. Some of it goes to a Chinese analytics firm, okay? Who are they selling it to? I don't know. And we talked about how in the last episode, we talked about how some of that data can be purchased and is being purchased by bounty hunters to find people. Wait, so this, this forgive my ignorance on this, <laughs> but I haven't delved this deeply into this. <laughs> As I push my phone further and further away from me <laughs> <laughs> right now. Is, is your location tracking on? <laughs> I turn that off until I really need to post something on Instagram, right. and then I turn it back on right. and forget to turn it off. Is that, is that de-identified data? So, like, if that data is sold to some firm in China, do they know, hey, that's Craig Albert, that's Dr. Albert? So here's Albert. what you have to think about. Yes and no. It, it depends. So your phone has what we call an, uh, it, well, so let's just layman's terms. There's a chip in your phone. That chip is tied to your phone provider and to your number. What's your number tied to? Me. Yeah. Like so bank if accounts, I, all that If I stuff. ask for that number off your phone, do I need anything else to tie it to you specifically? Hmm. No. And so, so what you get into there is you start delving into the moral complexities mm -hmm. of each of these companies because there's certain companies in tech that 
don't want to have all that personal information mm -hmm. on you and they want to kind of de-identify, but they just want the analytics to know like usage and mm -hmm. like, are people actually, are we going to, we're going to target by demographic, not by individual. Right. And then there's other companies that do want to target by individual and they want to be able to sell that information to marketers that are interested in it. And so you have to kind of in your own mind, which is wild, but you have to kind of reverse engineer like what's the intent of that company? Like, Which is why TikTok is the one that we bring up because we can't clearly say the intent because it is a you know, data that's housed outside of our, our country and it is controlled by... You in know, some cases. In some cases, in yep. some cases, yep. it's not, right. But Or it goes back to, uh, what was that face one, that face changing face one? Facetune. Facetune, was that the one? Face where app. Came, face app. app, yeah, it would make you, you know, a man or a woman or older, younger. Well, it was a Russian-owned company. Russian you know, all that data was being sucked up in Russia. The terms of service said we can do whatever we want with it. Okay, well, there's some concerns there, right? I mean, yeah, for deep fakes, I mean, anything yeah. that they can create with those images is, is yep. crazy. So, so we should just always operate under the understanding that they know it's us personally. And so that's how we should operate. Well, they may and they may not. But yeah, I think that's the safest thing to do yep. is just, just assume. Like ass assume everything's public. Right. I mean, that, that's, the, that's the safest way to operate. Right. That makes me like, very Don't say it if you wouldn't say it to your mother. <laughs> just, exactly. Just exactly. operate like that. Yeah. If this could come back to haunt you, well, don't post and it. And that information is posted. I mean, when so when you download Facebook or, or whatever, it's telling you that you're giving it the right yes. to do this, right? Yes. But nobody reads that, so right. they don't know. So well, I, I think they know, yeah. but I think what it what it's turned into is a um, it's written, but also an unwritten social contract that we have with these companies, where you know we we talk about these as free things. They're free services. Well, are they free? We're the product. We're right, the, yeah. exactly. Our data is the product. So by agreeing, you're making that agreement. You are saying, I understand that my information and my behavior is the product that you are after. Because it's not in even just your information because the advertisers want you to buy things. So it's your behavior. So if they can control your behavior, then that's the product that they're selling to advertisers. And to be clear, just to get... Uh, a totally different angle. You brought up like your phone provider. Mm -hmm. Well, so like my home internet, I'm not going to name who my home internet provider is for reasons, but they <laughs> own, that company owns an advertising network. The reason why I have to have their box in my house is because they look at all the sites I visit. The terms of service says that they have right. access to that information. And so then they can sell that information to marketing companies. <laughs> And, and they have all his information because he's everything. He's paying for his internet service, right? So they know exactly who it is. But they're also going to make target money on Josh. The back end. Yeah, they can target Josh directly. Right, and so there's a reason why I use a VPN at home for everything, because stick it to him. It's mine. <laughs> Get away. <laughs> yeah. So so that kind of brings us back to like data, right? So there's actually big money and big emphasis in data. And if you haven't heard of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, um, you know, as we pivot from Facebook, then you probably need to get on the internet a little more and read about that because it was all over. And it's, it's calmed down a bit, but what's funny is every time these things happen, um, these companies oftentimes dissolve and then what happens? Like when we see these companies undergo this type of scandal, they dissolve and then the CEOs and presidents and CTOs go and form new companies. <laughs> So the people aren't gone. The processes aren't gone. What they did is they learned from it. They got in trouble, and then they walked away and formed a new company to do it again. They just evolve into a right. newer version. Yeah, of they're the like, how can, we, how can we better hide this and get away with it? So that's why we talk about it. It's not that, oh, Cambridge Analytica is gone, so we don't have to worry about it anymore. Actually, no, we have to worry about it more because the people that were involved in that have learned from their mistakes. They'll mm -hmm. probably do it better. So interesting about an interesting thing about that, if you don't know much about the Cambridge Analytica thing, so it was a UK company, and they ended up getting over 5,000 data points on every American voter specifically. So this is something that really got a lot of attention based on the 2016 election, obviously. Um, so they got this through, get this, Facebook personality quizzes. Have you ever taken a personality quiz online, Dr. Albert? Not on Facebook. Okay. But I take the Walking Dead ones. <laughs> 
So what now the Russians, now the Russians know how to target you. I died in episode three. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Cambridge Analytica use Facebook personality quizzes, and we actually talk about this quite a bit in, um, you know, it, throughout the discussions that we have with the cyber cats. Um, but these, these types of quizzes are enticing for users. They like to take them. They also like to share their results, but they funnel a ton of personal information, demographic information. It gives you information about who you are psychologically, and you're giving that to a firm. So yeah, it's fun, and, and honestly, it's like, what Disney princess are you? Well, does it matter? Because if I'm giving away information about my psychology and what drives me, what motivates me, that means you now know how to manipulate me, right? And so this is where, um, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of issues with that survey because you actually granted C, uh, Cambridge Analytica access to your profile so they could not only get the information through the quiz, right? So you take the quiz, but that the thing is they, they hosted it on Facebook. This is how Facebook got involved. They hosted it on Facebook. And in order to take that quiz and show your results in Facebook, they also had to ask for permission to have your profile information. Didn't we just say that there was, um, was that political affiliation on your right. profile? Yeah, yep. so see how there's a problem there? So Cambridge Analytica paid Facebook to allow its survey to be put on there like that? So anyone can, so, so whether it was paid, so I don't know how many of the surveys were paid and how many weren't, but yes, you can pay to have anything you want be put on Facebook. And be a sponsored post. Right. And so when they, is there a clear, like how do, how do I buy all this, like can Russia buy all this data? Can, can a state government buy this data? So the idea was that Cambridge Analytica was collecting it, and then at that point it belongs to Cambridge Analytica, because it's the users, right, it's an asset. That data is now an asset because users signed away their rights when they said, yes, terms of service, I agree, I will give you permission. So all of that data got taken by that firm. It is now on that firm to decide what they do with the data. So the question becomes, can, can Russia buy it? Yeah, they can. I'm pretty sure that Russia wouldn't buy it with Putin's name on, on right, the right. invoice, right? But any company, any entity can purchase that data. So that's why I brought up bounty hunters, right? Like that's such a weird thing, but how else are you gonna find someone that's skipping and on the lam? Well, they have their cell phone. Buy the data from one of these analytics companies that's willing to give it to you. Some of these companies are smaller, but Cambridge Analytica was one of the bigger ones. And because they funneled and sucked up so much information during a period in time and then allowed it to be used by individuals and companies to target voting and to target behavior during an election year, that's really what brought the attention forward on that particular method. So they ended up fining Facebook $5 billion for misuse of data because ultimately, again, this goes back to that tie, Facebook allowed them to suck all that profile information out because of the way they... they Which was the... It was the largest fine yeah. in U.S. history, right? Right. But then you look at $5 billion and you go, okay, that's Facebook's not very much money. Sheet, it's right, like, right. Shrug, right. oops, and this slap is, on wrist. And this is not just like your profile information, but what everything in your account ties to you. So not just your profile information, like what your political affiliation is, but things like your family members who you're connected to. And actually, Cambridge Analytica ended up getting even down to private messages for users. So again, you're you're granting access, you're taking this personality quiz. Do you understand that behind that is a scheme for making money? Because again, Facebook and every other big tech company that provides us a service has to monetize. Well, part of their monetization it does not necessarily always include enough checks and balance to understand what data is being collected, used, retained, et cetera, by the people that are paying them. It and so that's like what the fine was about, really. There's an ethical dilemma that hasn't absolutely. been realized yet absolutely. by most Americans. Right. Yes, absolutely. Or how do we, how do we, yeah, this is a dilemma. This Right. <laughs> you get, when you get to get into ethics and morals, too, it just, it, it, it's always a gray area, and people will always have differing opinions, and you're really just depending on the ethical and moral standards of whatever XYZ company is going to siphon that data away. But I mean, this, if you bring this back to security studies, I mean, what Russia could do if it bought that information regarding psychological operations, for instance, or public exactly. affairs operations, or you said they could track 
family members. So mm-hmm. if they know that there's a U.S. military member stationed in Ukraine right now, they can do something to target their family, family member. Exactly. That's Changing. that is a security yep. threat. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's those peripheral people. It's the building of the networks. It's And I, you probably realize this already from if you think back to you were talking about how Russia, you know, originally it was spy networks. Right. And, you know, Putin's history and things like that. Well, before Facebook, we used, you know, more human human intelligence and spies and things like that. Well, the thing is, if we can get all of that access and that information through social media data, then that really brings that bar down as far as the effort we have to put forth in order to manipulate people. Because again, like you said, you know, the easiest way to get to Jimmy is probably through his mom or his sister or his wife or something like that. So, so that's, this is why we're teaching open source intelligence and, and social media intelligence as well. I think it's, what's funny is I think, you know, when we talk about open source intelligence, there's probably listeners that are going, well, what is that? That's when you Googled yourself. That's what that is. That's literally Mm -hmm. what that is. It's anything that is out there about you that the, anyone the you can volunteered. see. That you volunteered that yeah. anyone can see, right? Is so Google that's that open keep source. track of how many times you Google yourself? I mean, I'm sure they do if you're signed into your Google profile. Right. <laughs> like, this guy's really concerned. <laughs> Even then, they can cross-reference your IP <laughs> with your Google account, and you're still toast. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. 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 So, you know, open source is the stuff that you elected to put out there. You know, what we've discussed during this episode is really the stuff that you're putting out there and you don't realize it. And part of that is maybe onus on us for not reading terms of services, but at the same time, you know, going back to, unfortunately, I don't think we can change as a, you know, as individuals, I don't think we can change big tech, right? Because they have created this monetization model that works and and these things that we're talking about, this data that they're using and, you know, monetizing with advertising, that's not going to stop because, you know, we don't like it unless everyone just quits Facebook. And that's not going to happen. We know that, yep. right? So, Facebook I mean, is, a, is a, basically, I mean, at this point, it's a utility in our society. Yeah. I mean, it's in a lot of ways. Facebook hates it when people frame it up like that because they see themselves as a business. I don't have Facebook. I'm just going to make that clear. I mean, they, 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 it is <laughs> or a, it's a utility. It's a way, I mean, especially when you get down to WhatsApp and Messenger and mm-hmm. tools like that. I mean, there's a huge messaging platforms that are can reach basically everybody on the globe unless you're in China. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it it brings into question a lot of like, should a utility track you in that way? Right. Yeah. So it, it it's interesting because you know we we kind of circle around all of this, and I think the one of the takeaways here is. Like you said, Dr. Oliver, there's a lot of ethical concerns here. And the questions become, are those ethical concerns an onus on the tech companies? Are they an onus on the government? Are there onus on us as individual users to understand and police ourselves? I don't know. Like, I really don't know. So that brings up a question that I, I want to pose. So should behavioral change agencies or large social media platforms like the Facebooks and the Instagrams and the Googles and, and you know, those types of networks, should they have the power to influence people and be allowed to, you know, have any type of information or data or, or any interaction in things like elections? Because we know that elections are so important for our democracy. So, you know, do, it, so it comes back to the, the freedom of speech, you know, like, how how do we treat that? These are these are companies, but what they um, put out on their networks, uh, do we censor? Do they censor? What, where's the ethical lines? How do we draw them in a society that's free? I'm just in existential crisis. Yes, <laughs> I think as, we all are. As I usually am in talking to you. <laughs> But, I mean, just for instance, every social media platform right now, you know, when you sign on, it says, Craig, have you registered to vote yet? I mean, so if I hit yes or no or whatever, like, what type of information are they collecting on there? And then if you think about the neural hacking, the cognitive neural hacking aspect, I mean, the potential is there that if, if they know that you're a registered Democrat or a registered Republican, for instance, that they could, it is theoretically possible that there could be a campaign attempt to change your preferences sure. in voting or, yeah. or what or, side or more specifically more likely probably is to just sow doubt yeah. in whatever candidate they think you could potentially want to vote for mm-hmm. so stop which, you which from could, voting exactly. undermine the democracy yeah 
Yeah. So it just it becomes that question of, you know, if we understand that these big tech firms have created tools that essentially, yes, they are tools and utilities, but they are essentially tools and utilities for behavioral changes and manipulation. Do we put the onus of the ethical concern on them or does it belong somewhere else? So that's that's just the, you know, that's just the question for you to pontificate yep. on, and right? So I'm just going to say um, just verify your source first mm -hmm. um, when you if you see things online um, and I mean verify, even if it's a meme you can mm -hmm. try to verify your source mm -hmm. um, and then especially with like groups that someone may invite you to yep. who created that group right why is it here why Who's is it in there the group? why am I being invited to right. it um, and it really just comes down to like having a curious mind thinking critically about like you know who, who is this person or <laughs> what is this account and you know, where did this information come from? Right. And I would say be careful because, you know, you may you may already take those precautions with the political posts, but Cambridge Analytica was personality tests. So you just never know where that threat is going to come from. Sometimes I just have to know what Disney princess I am. <laughs> so, so which one are you? <laughs> Okay, you're going to pass on that. Okay, well, that's fine. We'll go I ahead. I was Dell in The Walking Dead, if y'all. Oh, yep, okay, sure. Yep. <laughs> well, I, I tell you what, after the podcast, we'll go ahead and take that quiz on Facebook. We'll post your results, and they can find you online. And Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. Well, thank you all for listening. Um, I know it was a pretty heavy episode, but, you know, we just wanted to put out some things to consider. Uh, it really doesn't matter if you lean left, you lean right, or you're in the middle. Understand that information is very critical and it is an asset and it can be used to manipulate us. So like Josh said, verify your sources, understand um, and, and dig deeper and be curious. So that's what we'll leave you with. Be curious like a kitty cat. Thank you for joining us today on the Cybercats. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you found today's show valuable, be sure to meow at us and rate us five stars wherever you listen, or simply tell a friend. Stay safe online, and remember, cats have nine lives. You don't. <laughs>